My name is Paul Waller and I'm a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my music industry job, it slowed right down. And at the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform called Letterboxd. So, I decided to fill in the gaps of my horror film knowledge. I'm still averaging two a day. And this podcast is a result of that horror compulsion. This is A Year in Horror. Welcome back, you horror list lovers. You're killing it. You've pressed play on this tumultuous terror experience. I knew you would. Fingers crossed, though, you've had a decent month and now you're fully prepared to get stuck into another big hitter episode with me because today we are heading back, but not that far back. It's 2014 in a year in Horrorland. And it was a great year for horror. In fact, we have a bony fidey a year in horror 10 out of 10 smash sitting atop the horror Christmas tree of this year. It's a bloody Christmas miracle, I tell ya. So, on the last episode, we covered 1963, and yeah, of course, I put Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds at the number one spot. There was a handful of other great horror films from 63, but none even came close to the birds. Can we say that? Can we say that? I think we can say that. I had no emails with people complaining. No one was outraged. There was no complaints, in fact. And I tell thee why. It is because, for once, I was probably right. And before we go into anything here, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Time Out, uh, the online magazine that used to be a magazine, or maybe they are still a magazine, just not in my realm of magazine reading. Well, anyway, Time Out magazine, they released their best movies of all time list. And there were 16 horror films amongst them. And, well, I would call them horror films anyway. Uh, And here are the results for you. It's an interesting sort of list, and I'm all about lists. So, as I said, 16. And we begin at 16 with a modern one called Get Out. At 15... Uh, don't look now at 14 we're going i think this is the oldest one it's the cabinet of dr caligari and at 13 the first one that i'm saying is a horror but you probably wouldn't it's seven uh, 12 the thing 11 the shining only my favorite movie of all time sitting outside the top 10 unbelievable but here we go this is the top 10 according to time out magazine of the best horror movies ever made At 10, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. At 9, The Blair Witch Project. At number 8, I couldn't believe they put this in there and I'm well happy with it. Great choice, Under the Skin. At 7, we've got Nosferatu. And at 6, another old classic, M. That's M for Mike. That's M for Mother. It's just the letter M. Top five time now, we've got Night of the Living Dead. 
And at number four, there is Psycho. At number three is Alien. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, whoa, hang on. Alien at number three. What's number two and what's number one? Well, number two is Jaws. And I think most of you will actually say, well, actually, Jaws was number one. Because what I've put at number one, you probably say isn't a horror film. But yeah, it's Mulholland Drive. I count that. It's horror. There are some genuinely scary scenes in that. And the overall tone is one of terror. One of horror. One of, oh my God, what am I watching? There you go, that was Time Out's list. I'd love to kick off with a list. Uh, But before we get into the show properly, before we go smacking that duck's back on this thing, here's a bit of the old hard sell for you. And guess what? A Year in Horror has a Patreon page. You knows it. And thank you so much if you've already joined it. But if you haven't yet, well, here is what's happening over there right now. Goodness gracious. If you join at the £4 tier... Uh, that's probably five bucks if you live in the States, then you're going to be supporting this show whilst listening to over a 100 episodes of extra content, which are already up there, including a ton of deep dives on each movie within the Video Nasty Tier 1 list. And coming up on that series this month, I'm going to be chatting with musician Larry Shamel. He is from Death Valley Girls, and we're covering Jess Franco's Bloody Moon on that one. I'm also still diving into the 60 strong Amityville horror film series over there and I've recently interviewed the writer and director of three of those movies, namely Thomas J. Churchill and we're talking about his film The Amityville Moon, the werewolf one set in Amityville uh, from 2021 that one. Uh, I've continued also the Nick's Picks series where I just genuinely have a nice chat with my good buddy Nick and we pick any movie at all that he wants to talk about about uh, just so we can hang out over zoom and this time around he chose the uk folk horror penders finn and that's the film i'd never seen before but i had heard a ton about it and i'd always had it on my list and yeah i was glad to get the excuse to actually watch it and for the fourth episode there of this month uh well of course there is some sweet a year in bollocks action where myself and howard smith from the band acid rain we're going to be covering a whole tv series this time around it's wolf pack starring buffy from the tv series buffy the vampire slayer yep sarah michelle geller in wolf pack and that's just this month. I mean, there's so many back episodes up there. There's more odds and sods than you can actually fill a custard donut with. There are at least four new episodes for you to dive in every month. I make sure that you're getting that bang for your buck. But most importantly, you're actually supporting this show, A Year in Horror. You're keeping me fired up. You're keeping me hungry to deliver some really interesting side quests to this, which is, of course, your main event. I'd love to see you over there. Patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. Thank you in advance. But for right now, you've clicked on this episode of the podcast and I am about to deliver to you part one of the 2014 rundown. This was the year of IP dominating the box office. Two movies, they stood above all others, namely Guardians of the Galaxy and Hunger Games. Mockingjay part one. 
both made around 320 million in US domestic business alone. Uh, the undercards, though, they were still making ridiculous money and still all IP. Captain America Winter Soldier, The Lego Movie, Transformers Age of Extinction or Alteron or whatever that shit was, and also Maleficent. But what about horror in the top 50? Well, well, well. Godzilla did reasonably well at number 11 in the chart, making a 200 million. Uh, at number 37 in the chart was Annabelle. And at number 45 was The Purge Anarchy. So there was a little bit of horror showing in the top flight of 2014. But I would say that it's not really considered horror's massive renaissance or anything. When people speak about 2014 at the movies, they don't really speak about horror. But... Personally, I've been juggling my list around, re-watching things, watching new things, and to me it looks proper decent on paper. And to make this assessment today, I've watched a total of 95, 95 horror, sci-fi and fantasy movies. I started to hit some really good ones when I got to around the number 22 mark in the chart, and that for me is a remarkably good turnaround, I've got to say. So, what was going on in 2014, eh? Well, let me tell you. It was almost a decade ago now that I just sat around a table with my friends and I said to them, let's form a band. By the end of 2014, we'd played our first gigs. We'd done a Showcase London show for a label that we were really hoping to get signed to. And then that worked out. And I was exactly a year on from discovering Black Sabbath as well. So I was heavily into listening to, to that back catalogue. Uh, and uh, all bands that were sort of similar and in around their orbit, old or new. In fact, I really dug this. Thanks to Sabbath, I was checking out anyone that dabbled in that low, tuny, doomy guitar sound. And this band, Conan, from Liverpool, well, they played Caveman Battle Doom. Uh, that's their style. That's what they tell us anyway. Uh, and in fact, they're the only band playing in that style. But that's fine with me. Uh, there was also this. <laughs> also discovering synthwave in 2014 and this artist called perturbator that you just heard a bit of they were doing the rounds and i was really into it but it wasn't really until 2015 when i discovered the synth dark goodness of ghost g-o-s-t ghost ghost whatever you want to call it and then all bets were off my favorite song of that year was probably this Thanks, Mastodon. But what about this one? Maybe it's this. Thank you to Marmosets. But whatever. I was loving music still. Of course I was. But that was just where my head was at at the time. What about the actual news? Well, here's three or four things. Let's say three things. Because... I don't think I wrote four prompts down. No, three things. 
2014 was the year that the airplane disappeared from the skies. Remember that? March the 8th it was. A Malaysian Airlines flight from Kuala Lumpur, destined for Beijing. It vanished. Where'd it go? There was also an Ebola epidemic. It was very rampant in the Africas and it started to spread around the world. There were a couple of cases that turned up in the USA and luckily it made sure that the world was completely prepared for any epidemics or pandemics that may well have hit in the coming years. Also, Robin Williams died. And that seems a lot longer to me than 2014, but there we go, that's when it was. Looking down the news articles, it just gets proper depressing from here on, so I'm going to move on. And that was the times. Some culturally significant times, but not 2014 horror movie podcast times, right? So, how do things work exactly on this show? Well, for those new to the show, here's a kiss-me-quick guide to what a year in horror is all about. It's a podcast where I choose a year at random every month and then I run down my favourite personal films of that year. It's very easy. That's the podcast. And if I'm covering a film that you don't like, you don't care for, or you just want to skip on because I'm boring talking about it, well then all the time codes are in the notes. But be careful because they also act as spoilers for what is coming up next. And with each episode, I am joined by some delightful guests that help me sift my way through the most interesting stuff of the bunch here. And for this, the 2014, have I mentioned that? Yeah, I think I have. It's the 2014 Big Hitter episode. Coming back into the fold, we have the wonderful regular guest. And he's spaced out. He's a spectrum of light in the night sky. He is Mr. Mark Canali. Uh, we've also got musician Stuart Day. He's coming back after he tackled the purge anarchy with us about six months ago for a special show. I think that was with his band Donny Jepp. He's also in Ohms. Ohms just split up. I miss him already. Although we are going out for a lovely pizza together soon, so that'll be good. I also want to give you a warm, a warm welcome, a return from musician London May. Yep, that London May as well. The one that was in Samhain. He recently covered a Serbian film with us. Uh, that was a couple of months ago. So he's in the crew today. Also, special guests. Those that are new to the show. Well, we have director Elizabeth Blake Thomas. We've got musician Mike Bourne. He's from the band Teeth. Of the sea. We also have music journalist, uh, ex features editor of the enemy, and also just the editor editor of Kerrang magazine for a while anyway, uh, James McMahon, plus the musician and the singer of Clutch. That's right, I said Clutch, it's Neil Fallon. If that's not a lineup, then you need to look at the trade's description, uh, description of what a lineup is because that definitely is one. Right. Here we go. Almost there. My definition of horror now. Well, it's often considered absolutely positively ridiculous by those self-appointed gatekeepers with a more defined opinion of what makes a horror an actual horror. And sometimes my absolutely positively splendid opinions, well, they can make it to the very high reaches of the charts. So if you're one of those absolutely positively easily offended ghouls, then be prepared to get absolutely positively triggered and because 2014 is not a bolted on year where the general consensus sort of agrees that a certain film was the best in show in fact other people's lists they're just like all over the shop for this year 
I don't know if I'm going to come out unscathed or not. And when you make it to the very end of this episode, I usually would be picking out from a bag at random the next year that I'm going to tackle for the next month's edition of the show. But this time around, I already know what the next big hit is going to be. Uh, it's a rather special episode and it's going to be Flipping Fruity. And you know what else? I've got some rules. And these are the rules that I follow to create the show. A movie has to score at least 3 out of 5 on Letterboxd for me to watch it. And sometimes there's going to be exceptions to that rule. And 2014 saw the release of Dead Sea, for instance. And that's got a close, but nowhere near, actually. 2.8 score on Letterboxd. But I've got an interview coming up with the actor-director Devaney Pin, and she is in Dead Sea. So I wanted to catch as many films with her in it as possible. So, yeah. There we go. Every episode will have some sort of deviation from the rules. I apologise. And also, I do not apologise. Uh, here's the most important thing, though. I'm simply a fan. I'm an enthusiast. I am no scholar of horror. I'm a dabbler in the darkness. And for the most part, I don't watch these things academically. It's just a deep love of horror, just like you lot out there. I get excited about these films every single day. They Bear their way into my mind, needling me until I watch one. And of course, it's just my opinion. It's a list show after all. Your opinions are going to be different, and that's cool. And if I miss something out there that you love, let me know. And the reason I say that is because I really do want to discover new movies. I also like to hear from you, so if you found a cool recommendation from me, let me know what you thought of it. I'll always find time to say hello back to you. And finally, just feel free to contact the podcast any way you want to. That's okay. You can follow me at Walla Not Weller, I think it is. Walla Not Weller on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm also Walla Not Weller on Instagram. Or you can hit me up at Not Weller Pod on Twitter or X, whatever that is going to be next week. Also, you can email me directly at a year in horror at gmail.com. That is probably the place where I'm going to get back to you the fastest. If you do enjoy this show, why don't you leave a five-star review? Show your support. Maybe you want to go to Patreon. That's cool as well. I'd love that. That's fantastic. I just want to spread the word with this thing without having to go down that advertising route. So, yeah. Are you ready? Hold on to your spleen. It's 2014. The worst of the worst of the worst. It's worst. There were definitely worse movies than these that came out in 2014, but these were the worst 10 that I sat through for this episode, and this episode includes five god-awful 3 out of 10 picks, one perplexing 2 out of 10 nubbin of nonsense, and four 1 out of 10 catastrophes. But before we get there... There were four movies that I couldn't source that I wanted to watch for this episode. Uh, first off was a film called The Incident, which I think is a Mexican dual reality cop thing. I did actually find a naughty copy of it, but I couldn't find the um, the uh, subtitles. That's what I'm looking for, subtitles there. Uh, Tokyo Tribe was next, and I'm not really bothered about that I couldn't find that one because the trailer makes it look like this horrible Japanese noisy ultra-violence 
I've watched so many of them, I know I'm not going to enjoy it, but I still keep watching them because maybe a giallo thing will happen and it will click. Something a little bit quieter, um, but uh, Japanese sci-fi horror, this one, was Parasite Part 1. I couldn't find that. Well, at least if I didn't want to put up my house for a remortgage. And then finally, there was a limited TV series called Ascension, which is all about some space voyage. Couldn't find that one either. Sad times indeed. But regardless of all that, you're about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Well, my least top 10 favourite horror films from 2014 anyway. We, as usual, will begin here with Best to Worst. And again, as usual, we're going to begin with the 10th worst movie that I saw, which was Wreck 4, Apocalypse. General. To be honest, I'm shocked at how this franchise turned in this very much stinker of a zombie movie as the final piece of its puzzle, especially after like the thoroughly enjoyable wedding-based one, which was Wreck 3. This generic, I'm um, hold up whilst the contagion spreads movie, that whole vibe was played out like a decade before this hit the screen, so... I would say this one is fit only for completionists to fill out their box sets, but... It was just a boring, boring zombie bumble. Slightly worse than that, though, and one that people do love, was Ouija. And I don't think that like jump scares should ever be this predictable and boring. It was a complete disappointment because that premise, I didn't mind it. It was a complete 80s teen throwback. You'd think they'd have mined for a speck of decent horror content, but it's just over-glossy, looks too safe, feels too safe. It is too safe. That was Ouija. At number eight, we're laying down to rest Almost Human. It was actually released in 2013 for the film festival circuit, but for regular folks like you and I, we could only watch it in 2014. I found it for free on Tubi, and there was some pretty bad writing and dialogue and acting and pacing. Uh, this is an alien assimilation romper. And even though I did make it through to the end, I know there's nothing here that's going to stick with me forever and ever and ever. Only my rather low letterbox score will remain once uh, I've woken up tomorrow morning. I can tell you that much. But sadly, following this, even worse, is the sequel to Monsters. It's called Monsters Dark Continent. And yeah, this one, it's just a war film with some half-decent CG in it. Trouble being is that you don't care about anyone in this whole movie. So moving on to number six, I've placed Black Coal Thin Ice. It's a popular Chinese serial killer investigation movie that left me, quite frankly, bored. Which is surprising is again, the first 15 minutes, they rock. The setup was really smooth, but it doesn't seem to be about the whodunit angle. It's more of a character study on an actual washed-up copper that sort of has some dance moves. And I think those dance moves needed a slightly better editor to make them work than they do here. Uh, that's Black Coal Thin Ice. And now we're sinking really low. Uh, we enter the top five worst films. We're hitting the bizarre 
alter. Steve Oram, who I love, is not enough to raise the score here. This is a tired English country ghost story. It drags and 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 it drags. Just a touch worse than that is Flight 7500. The synopsis is that this flight 7500 it departs los angeles international airport bound for tokyo as the overnight flight it makes its way over the pacific ocean during its 10-hour course the passengers encounter what appears to be a supernatural force in the cabin and that synopsis my friends makes this movie sound way more interesting than it is the woman in black 2 angel of death is the originally titled ghost story that I think could quite possibly be the most lifeless horror film that was ever released. It's unappealing in every way. It's a hateful shambles. I'm not in. I'm not game. I'm not having it. And just missing out on the coveted worst film spot. Well, it's the absolutely bloody horrible A Grim Becoming. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. I watched it on Tubi, and the reason I watched it was because we were potentially going to have Devaney Pin on this episode, but... She got called up to do a a different film, so instead she's going to be coming back some point next year. But I'm sort of glad because I didn't want to speak to her about this, my God no. This film contains nowhere near enough Devaney Pin, uh, and it's way too much like first year art school performance dynamics. Uh, There's too much of it going on here. It's never scary, it's never funny, and it's always a chore to get through to the following scene. This film... Uh, It's called A Grim Becoming, I think I've mentioned that. It plays death against the generic everyman office worker. And in this battle, no one cares who wins. They just want the fight to end quickly, and I just wanted the film to end quickly, and it didn't. But I know what you want. You want a total, stillborn, uneasy pile of old boots. And you've got it. My number one worst film that I saw for 2014... Well, it's Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper. I was only 22 years old when the story began, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Little did I know, as I took that fateful trip, I would encounter something far more dangerous and a hell of a lot bigger than turkeys. What kind of stories? Local legends about some kind of creature roaming these woods. Bigger than a man, stronger than a bear. My God, you did it. You stole $200,000, jumped off a plane, and killed one of the greatest urban legends. You're famous. And who is this D.B. Cooper? I'll let that remain a mystery.
So what a premise this one is. I did not believe that Red Letter Media included this in one of their episodes. So of course, I had to watch it before I watched that Red Letter Media episode because what they said was exactly what this film was and I was very intrigued. Unfortunately, what it is, is a stack of buff guys walking around a house topless. Uh, Bigfoot is in the woods. I actually couldn't finish it. But I still had to include it because, yeah, what a premise. The reason why nobody found D.B. Cooper was because of Bigfoot. But that is all I could take away from this mess. I don't know who won the battle, who won Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper. I have no idea. I do not care. I would not recommend any of these films at all, especially that one. I did get quite far in it, but my word, it was hard work. Uh, Avoid 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 even with all your buddies around loads of booze just avoid cool there we go said my piece that was the worst of the worst of the worst found footage bigfoot the sasquatch it's a no-brainer combo right so this one is directed by bobcat godthwaite yeah uh, who i'd only known from police academy 2 Police Academy 3 and Police Academy 4. Uh, I watched those movies religiously as a kid. He was a big reason why. Uh, Bobcat also put together this horror anthology series in the States uh, in 2018 called Bobcat, Godthwaites, Misfits and Monsters. That's a hard name to say. Uh, His other acting credits include Scrooged with Bill Murray who I did get told off once by Lono for it not being my favourite ever film. He's also been in a handful of other TV appearances on the likes of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Tales from the Crypt, Are You Afraid of the Dark? That's another one. Uh, I'd all but forgotten the man existed, to be honest, until I saw his name on the credits of this very film the first time I saw it. I would 100% recommend this film to you. Watch it before we spoil the hell out of it going forward, uh, because we do in this conversation. It's only 80 minutes long. It's simple. It's called Willow Creek. And Rotten Tomatoes' critic score is certified fresh at 80% and 34% audience score. Don't know what's going on there. Uh, Before we go into a trailer and then the chat... I'm going to give you a letterbox synopsis. Looking to make a splash online with his research videos into the existence of Bigfoot, Jim and his girlfriend Kelly, they take a camping trip to the small town of Willow Creek in California and the surrounding mountains where the infamous footage of the supposed Sasquatch film was made. I said I would come on this trip to help you with your film. I'm not about to say that I believe in Bigfoot. Friends will all think you're crazy, and you'll spend all of your days searching for something that you never find. 29 miles north of here, you come to the bottom of Bluff Creek. Pets and people go missing all the time. We're here! (laughs) (laughs) The real truth of it is you're out in the middle of nowhere. How do we know we're going in the right direction? Come here! Turn that thing okay. off. Okay. That sounds like someone's crying. Kelly! <laughs> 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 
And all right, today we've got a special guest on this podcast. It's James McMahon. I've known his journalism work for an age now and we do chat about what he's up to in this conversation but before going in if you haven't heard of him well here we go he's a journalist from london via the industrial north and for a long time he was a features editor of the legendary british music paper called the nme Uh, but for even longer he was the editor of the british rock magazine the foundation of rock if you will kerrang and in and amongst this he's written for the face the Evening Standard, The Guardian, The Observer, Vice, Spectator, and more. He has talked about pop music on BBC Radio 1, Channel 4, Sky News, and I mean, if that is not enough, I absolutely loved his music podcast as well, and his Annie Hardy episode, it gave me the confidence to actually reach out to her and book in a chat, which you may well have heard on A Year in Horror a couple of months ago when we spoke about Dashcam. James McMahon has a lot going on he's got a new book coming out as well just want to mention that i will inform you lot when it does come out because it's 100 100 got to be worth a read anyway here we go this is myself and james we are shooting that breeze back in the middle of october 2023 and before i just slip that conversation in there was so much music stuff to talk about in this that i almost wanted to release it as something completely separate But it goes a great way to giving you a clue to what makes a man tick. And for a music lifer like myself, and well, I think it's all invaluable knowledge from a fella that has been there and done it. So in that case, be forewarned, a lot of music stuff going in. Here we go. Welcome, first of all. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, I stopped listening to podcasts when you stopped your music podcast. Oh, God, that's a lot yeah. of responsibility. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I was addicted. And you know, like when you binge series, I yeah. about a month before you cancelled, I discovered you. And I just binged the whole thing. I freaking loved it and i loved when you were picking up episodes from previous podcasts that you did and you threw them in and i was like oh man this is so exciting this is great and i was just getting through them i i loved like for instance the ned's one that was just like oh man i love that and then then there was like one that blew me away and i before we start about anything i just want to say thank you so much that podcast that you did with annie hardy oh right yeah absolutely yeah. mind-blowing mind-blowing yeah yeah it's, it. it's funny i should say it's funny i'm actually kind of thinking sort of halfway down the road of prepping some more episodes like it just got a bit i'm a bit dis, i'm a bit sort of disillusioned with music at the moment so it did start to get a bit of it was almost like um doing you know, if there was something in your life that you did that made you really miserable, I don't know, it's, that's, that's a really simplistic way of explaining it, actually, because music doesn't make me miserable. I just needed a bit of a break from music. So I, I kind of was like, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. But I also had put so much work into it, and people did seem to enjoy it. I mean, like, obviously, 
you know, you, you happily have another million listeners to every episode. But there was enough people listening to it and enjoying it and feeding back about it to make me think, oh, I should do more of this maybe someday. Like it didn't feel like it didn't feel like I should torpedo all that work. But I just at the moment, it just was like making me quite unhappy. But right. there's a few people who were like hung over from who I'd meant to do an episode with who were just hanging around and I might just speak to them and just dump 10 episodes at some point. So, you know, there is uh, and there's some pretty wild names on there. Actually, there's, there's a few people who are like wild people who I never thought I would ever get to speak to. So I stay tuned is basically what I was going to say. I should say, by the way, I've been listening to the fool today. Oh, hello. Yeah. Well, I mean, I said to you when you said, Oh, do you want to do this? I, I love your band. So, um, Jesus. I mean, that's that's not my favourite of the records, but for some reason that was the record I turned to today. So, as I was uh, as I was doing a bit of a walk, that's what I was listening to today. It was driving me on. I, I love it. The thing with the band, much like you with the music podcasting, is I'm I burnt out with it. So yeah, the, our next show will be our last. And I did not know that. Yeah, well, no one knows it. <laughs> We've not told anyone. So yeah, we're just. We are just gonna sort of quietly pack it in. Um, oh, I love that! I love that I've eat. I, mean, I don't love it because I don't want you to be the bearer <laughs> of bad news. But I love the fact that even though I'm not doing my music podcast, I've managed to eke out an exclusive there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the management know. Uh, Justine from right. um, Employed to Serve knows because she's our boss. But oh, <laughs> yeah, right. I did it. not know that. Right. It's fucking man. You know, music's the best thing in the world, but every single thing about music that isn't the music is shit now and i every so often i mean i used to make music i used to be in a band every so often i hear a record i think i'd love to do another band i'd love to get some mates in a room and you know and i, I just then i just look at i just look at the state of play how difficult it is for bands now like i just think it's just a mess and there, there is part of me that's really interested in trying to be part of the answer to that mess and to try and solve it but i just think when bands split up i used to say why why would you do that and now i go yeah now i get it you know it's yeah. it's fucking hard work it, it is we got offered so many like american tours uh, european tours and even in a tour of india but we just couldn't financially make these things work without really crippling us or right. quitting our jobs yeah, uh, which yeah, we yeah. Oh, it was too risky yeah, of course, uh, yeah so yeah i mean i remember when we got in kerrang just a couple of pages but i remember back in a time when it, you'd done that uh, if you'd managed to get a couple of pages in kerrang you could probably still now like if you didn't did that in the early 90s you could still now be retiring on a circuit you know just doing small gigs but you'd be set for flipping life and that's not the way it is now no, not at all. I, I remember when you got that in Kerrang because there was a conversation with me and the section editor where it was like, just do something that you really want to do. Because it was so, like, you know, my era of Kerrang is such a weird era because it was really trying to walk a tightrope between the insane vision that my paymasters had, which was very far away from really what I thought Kerrang should be, and also trying to make Kerrang a bit more what I should be. So it was quite kind of, uh, you know, I'm a mental health advocate. I don't like using the word schizophrenic, you know, kind of willy-nilly, but it was a bit schizophrenic, you know. like, um, And I, I remember when we did that thing with OMS, I remember thinking, oh, well, this is a, 
you can put this in the in the win column. Yeah, cheers, man. Um, yeah, no it's one of those dream come true things. So yeah, for, for someone that was like, I, I bought my first issue in the very late eighties. So um, yeah, it's like, mom, can I have this? Can I? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. but the, the other thing, well, I, I guess it's like I always had that relationship with Kerrang, but I was probably more of an enemy guy. And I definitely had my criticisms for that when I was at Kurang. But I do think there's, I don't know, I don't have anything to do with Kurang at all anymore, but I do love the fact that it's still there. Like, it's just, again, sort of being a bit gross, like thinking about brands, like it is a brand, like it's still, it, it, it still means cool. something and the name still resonates. And I think that's, I think that's amazing. I can't wait to read your book and um, just to get like a lowdown on your opinions of things like that. Like you mentioned NME uh, there. I At the same time that I was getting Kerrang! So I was like just a music fan. So I had NME, Melody Maker, I'd be getting Select, whatever I could find out there. Like all my money would go on these magazines and I would just absorb the whole thing just to be part of it. And the other day, I had to go to the tip and tip them. We've just bought a house and like I've got to make a, a clear breakaway. So there was a few like golden ticket ones that I would I'd sold on eBay or whatever, but it was heartbreaking to do that, man. Just so much history. But I think sometimes you've just got to go, just do it, clear it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to collect everything that I was in, like everything, and I was really diligent about it. And then there was a point, I think it was when I was at Kerrang, or maybe, it was maybe even at the the end of being an enemy where I just missed a couple of weeks and and from that point on it was sort of just too hard to collect everything so I've, I've got like quite a complete collection to a certain point but I mean it, it is that thing of like how often I mean there just comes a, I've been in my house now for quite quite a while but it just comes a point where you just you're just lugging slabs of paper around you know and you're like <laughs> so you know, heavy you're like, you know what, if I ever need to revisit this, they're all in the British Library, you know, like it, there is there is a record of everything somewhere. So, And also sometimes you just want to be free of it as well. So you're just like, oh, fuck that. You know, yeah, I'm the... still not feeling good yet, but I'm sure, I'm sure it will come. I'm sure it will come. Yeah. Um, so I've mentioned your book, um, and I, I don't want to spoil the book, not for anyone. I don't care about anyone out there, just for me, for when I read it. So, um, But I still need to ask you a few questions about people you've interviewed. So yeah, if I it. may. Yeah, yeah do it. <laughs> okay, so uh, these are just sort of quick fire questions. I just want to know you to name who it was and why you would give that as an answer. Just generally. Okay, so here we go. I want to, first of all, the interview that you're most proud of completing. Oh Christ! Um, well, I did. I was really into like Riot Girl and stuff as a teenager, and somehow me and a couple of other members of staff at Enemy managed to get Beth Ditto on the cover from the Gossip, and that definitely felt like a massive win at the time. But you know, like God bless Skins and standing in the way of control, that kind of helped, you know, help facilitate that. But I did Beth Ditto. I did that interview where she took her clothes off and it was it felt really punk it felt like a real sort of disruptive moment at the time um and i did that i did that in brighton during the great escape once and that was my first ever cover feature and it was like the first the first cover feature i'd ed edited as features edit as well i'd only been in the job a couple of weeks and um yeah that's always the one i mean that cover won loads of awards and um 
it's funny i when i was researching the book i went back and i read the cover feature and it's amazing how hopeful <laughs> i sounded it and also how much of what i'm interested in at that point i managed to crowbar in there like i was like a massive gallows fan you know i was a proper cheerleader for gallows and there's bits in it where i'm like sort of derailing the conversation just to talk to beth about gallows it's funny when i when i read it back that my sort of 27 year old self man that was it i remember that coming out and yeah it was like whoa Okay, I mean, there, there, there's probably 50 English music magazine covers that you would say these define something, maybe not even 50, and that is one of them. That just still must feel like, whoa, I, was, I did that. Well, it's, it's funny because, you know, I was, I, was, I was very senior at Enemy and I was there during, like, an interesting era, and I guess that, like, that's always what you want from being a music journalist. Like, you kind of want to be part of these classic eras, and I don't think anyone who worked at Enemy during my era would say that it was a classic era, but it was, you know, there, there was some important happenings during that time. And, right. you know, when they do, like, exhibitions of Enemy covers, it always gets included, so that's always, like, a buzz. And I guess that, like, sometimes I feel like with my time at Enemy, and even Kerrang, because I've had all these problems with OCD, there was a lot of things... And also because, like, I like a lot of music which kind of don't get anywhere near a cover like there was always a bit like oh i feel like maybe i missed out on that because whatever was going on in my head or maybe i should have like appreciated that moment a bit more or i mean there were definitely there were big acts that i got asked to interview and i didn't do it because i didn't feel right with my ocd but the fact that beth's in there is uh sort of makes up for it a little bit it reminds me of the Huggy Bear one when uh, that came out many, many moons ago. And like there was real strong opinions on it. Like the letters page the following week were mad. It was like, fuck yes. And then half were like, what the fuck are you doing? Who's Huggy Bear? It was mad. Uh, and much the same thing happened here. Well, the hilarious thing was there's a, when I left Enemy and they did like my leavers speech, they found a load of letters that I used to write to Enemy as a teenager because they they were in print. Brilliant. But they'd found the I don't know how they didn't, it must have just been something I'd mentioned like at some point you know when we were having lunch or in the pub or something and they dug out these these letters and I'm in there praising the Godspeed the Black Emperor cover, which is like text. It's like just like a lyric. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like really obviously like self, you know, righteous and sort of very earnest as a teenager. And I'm like, this is exactly what enemies should be doing. Like, you know, congratulations and, you know, you fulfilled your remit and yada, yada, yada. And I list a load of other acts that should be in there, including like my mates' bands. And that cover was always, it was, it was always like, uh, it was like um, Voldemort. It's like you, you weren't supposed to say its name, you know, like right. it was like the cover that shall not be named because it was associated by the, the brass, the powers that be with like a terrible sale that week. And I was there, I'm in print as a teenager being like, this is everything enemy should be. So it was, <laughs> but I, that did kind of define a little bit how I viewed, how I viewed enemy's role really was to kind of create those sort of playground talking points, you know, but. Again, that sounds like we're talking about. It sounds like we're talking about how to make fire in the cave. You know, it's, it feels like <laughs> feels like something from so long ago. Okay, um, next one. 
I want to know the worst interview, but it was your fault. Oh God, um, that's a tough one. That really, I, I don't think I have loads of like shockers. You know, like I, I did the killers once where Brandon Flowers walked out, but uh, because I'd asked him something that was political, and he sort of walked out and then kind of stumped around a bit and then came back in. But I remember when he walked out, being like, "Well, that's you know, that's that's made the piece better." You know, and I don't think I was wrong to ask it. So there's a couple of things when I look back and go, I feel like I sort of changed a little bit as a writer at some point in my 20s. I felt like I was really inspired by very sort of like confrontational music journalists. And then I got to a point where I went, this might just be a bit like bullying. And actually, you're not really learning who a person is by kind of going in all guns blazing. So there's a few of those. I, I sort of remember doing like the Gaslight Anthem and kind of wincing with hindsight with that, kind of being like, oh, you went in there with a... Not that I sort of misquoted him or anything like that, but I went in there with a bit of an agenda and actually with hindsight, I sort of go, oh, well, how much did you actually learn about the guy? I like I like that, you know, I like that band, you know, well, like the first record anyway, but, you know, like that's a bit... Yeah. But, it, you know, it wasn't like a... I don't know, it wasn't uh, Lester Bang's Lou Reed or anything. It was just a bit, with hindsight, I'm like, oh, I probably would have done that a bit different. I think there's a few, there's quite a lot in the book, actually, about... Like, the book's a weird one, really, because it is kind of about me in music journalism. But it's kind of a... It's, there's lots of famous people in there, but in lots of ways, it's like they're kind of the canvas for the stories in the book, because a lot of it is about my OCD, well, it is about my OCD, but a lot of it's about the madness of OCD. So there was a few things like I interviewed uh, Graham Coxon once, who was like my teenage hero. And like, I'm having a completely different experience to what the interview is with the thoughts in my head. Right. Like I remember obsessing about throwing coffee at him. I don't know how much you know about OCD. It's, it's an absolute it, shit. from I've learned quite a lot from your podcast. It's an absolute shit show. And you have these intrusive thoughts, right? And like this it's about sort of not attaching any meaning to the intrusive thoughts and just trying to let them be. And one of them was when I was talking to him that I couldn't stop thinking about throwing coffee at him. And then after the interview was done, I actually obsessed for, you know, half a day that I'd thrown coffee on him and had to check with the PR if I had thrown coffee on him. I mean, it, it, I can laugh about it now, but at the time it was terrible. So there's quite a lot of things like that in the book about, I mean, he wouldn't have even known, you know, he might've been like, oh. well, he might've been like, well, why does this guy seem a little bit uptight, you know, because, because there was almost this sort of third person in the interview. But anyway, that aside, my very complicated self-destructive brain aside, uh, there's been no disasters, really, I don't think. These have been great. I can't believe it. I love it. Uh, I feel like <laughs> I'm getting my own little intro to the book. Um, right. Person that you really wanted to interview and then you got. Would that be Graham or was there someone else? Um, well, with the podcast, it was really good to like tick off, you know, because I, I don't quite know how much music journalism exists as a career anymore. I mean, there are people who are still making a living from music journalism, but it feels a little bit like maybe they're, uh, maybe they're sort of get ready to turn out the lights in a way. I'm, I'm sure it'll exist in some form, but certainly the music press I knew, I feel like is kind of gone and is never coming back. 
So whilst I do still kind of interview bands fairly regularly sometimes, well, fairly regularly for the newspapers or when I was doing the podcast regularly, there was a bit of a process of thinking, who didn't I do? Like, who did, who did you want to do that you didn't do? And a lot of the podcast was trying to hunt these people out. So to all my sort of tick them off the the bucket list. I mean, I don't have a bucket list, but to tick off, to tick off like my to, to, to sort of honour the fourteen-year-old indie rock fan that I was, and one of them was Soul Asylum. Um, I really wanted to speak to Dave Perna. Um, I really wanted to speak to Bill Janovitz from Buffalo Tom. They were like a really important band to me growing up. I love the Pixies. I've never spoke to a, a, a Pixie, but I've been trying to kind of work that. I was trying to work that on the podcast to speak to someone. So th those things were like a real, you know, they're almost things that I don't know how many people care, you know, like how many people are actually wanting to listen to a new Solar Cell interview in 2023. But like th that band really mattered to me when I was a kid. So the podcast gave me license to go try and hunt, right. them, hunt them out, you know. So I, I can probably think of, I can probably think of, you know, people who are more pertinent than that, but they're, they're two that, uh, there two that come to mind. I love it. I do myself have a bucket list and I've been really lucky with it so far. I've got one left. I had a five tier bucket list, five people that I wanted and I've got one left to do and I just don't think I'm going to get him and that's Ace Fraley. So I reckon you could get him. I don't know. I'm really, I'm really hoping. I know uh, like uh, people within his sphere <laughs> that know his daughter so that's my one in so maybe i think no i i do i think you could get there i mean it's weird isn't it like you know i don't know you know like i don't know how many friends i made within my time in music journalism like i definitely you know other journalists yeah but like i don't know how many bands i would say were friends but i did get really friendly with gerard way and he he was very blunt from the beginning like i, I i'm not going to do podcasts but hey how, how have you been you know yeah and sometimes you sort of get to a point where you don't really want to like work it anymore you just you're like well okay they don't want to do it so you know fair <laughs> enough but I, I think ace freely i think you can get ace freely i believe in you <laughs> i'm taking that to the bank <laughs> no, I really, I really do. I don't know whether it's just because like, G like Gene is so easy to get. You know, I've, right. interviewed, I've interviewed Gene Simmons like eight or nine times. You know, um, but I, no, I think I think you could get his freely. Right. Okay. Um, That's me manifesting for you. No, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'm accepting that. I'm, I'm on board with it. Um, are, you, are you a big Kiss fan, like? Oh yeah, it's it's the the band. I in 1980 uh, in Australia. And that's when they came over and toured. And of course, as a little kid, you get all them in their makeup in 1980, even though it was like on the back of like not their most popular work, but it's stuck with me ever since. Yeah. 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 Crazy. It's just like that Melvin's thing, you know, like it hit you at a certain age and you can't get out of it. Like I talking to King Buzzo and he was like, I'm stuck on Kiss. I can't take them away. Yeah, and yeah, it's one of those it's a, it is a nightmare, right? I was l listening to like Nirvana were my, you know, year zero. They were my awakening, and I was listening <laughs> the other day. I was listening to the live tracks that are on that are getting released with the the thirtieth anniversary of Inutro in, in that box set that's coming out like next right. week. I think it is, 
and there's a live version of Penny Royal Tea, which isn't, which isn't, you know, it's not even in my sort of top 10 Nirvana songs, but I was listening to it the other day because they've been on Spotify before the actual release. And like, I was like, this is better than any music that I've heard all year. Fucking hell. Why did the first band I ever got into have to be the best band I got into? Like, there's almost a bit of a... I always sort of feel slightly cursed by that in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. the Ramones are probably my favourite band, right? But I discovered them a lot later. But imagine if I'd got into the Ramones. Imagine if I heard the first Ramones record. I just don't think I would have got into music, really, because I just would have been like... How, how is anything going to be better than this? I've, I've, I've peaked on the first side of the first Ramones record. <laughs> Too right. Yeah. I I was there at Reading '92 for Nirvana's thing, oh, and I was Christ. I got three rows back. They were my life at the time. Like you could just imagine. And this um, over the years, people are, have said like, "Oh no, that wasn't a great show. It, it was, a, you know." And I, like, what are you talking about? And that's the, the, the it's the only time I've actually wanted to like get in, involved in like Twitter fights and things like, like who does that? It's like what I know, but yeah, yes, yeah, I don't know. It's the one thing that still winds me up about music, like everything else, opinions, whatever. Like live with them, but that is like I will die on the hill. Me and my wife were talking the other day about if you could go back in time, what would you, what would you go observe? It came about because there was... Do you know that podcast, The Y Files? No. No, I do not. I, I bet it's right up your street, actually. It's... Uh, it, it's. I don't want to say it's like a conspiracy, pod, a conspiracy podcast, but it's, it's about like conspiracies and the paranormal and um, kind of high strange, so to speak. But it's presented in a very funny, entertaining way. It's a, a YouTube channel, but they're a podcast as well. And they, there was this episode I was watching the other day about this device that is allegedly in the Vatican vaults that allows Really, you, I love it. Yeah, I wish I could remember what it was called. But it allows you to uh, view historical events. And I, I, I don't buy this. I believe some pretty wild shit, but I don't buy this. <laughs> and there was some priest who said he'd taken photos of the crucifixion and it transpired that actually the photos he'd taken were sort of messed around with negatives of uh, famous um, paintings of the of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Anyway, so this led onto a conversation with me and my wife of if you could go back, if you could view any at any point of history, like what would it be? And I did get to, the first one would be dinosaurs, obviously. The second one would be my dad's childhood, because that might help me understand him. And the third one was Nirvana at Reading. I would totally... And, like, she was, and she was, like, aghast, you know? Like, she was, like, what, not, like... <laughs> you know, like, some sort of, you know, major historical event, the fall of Rome or whatever. But I was like, no, no, Nirvana at Reading, definitely. So. Um, you must have seen both performances. Just a quick final thing before we get into horror. Um, the, the Nirvana 91 or Nirvana 92, what would you rather have seen? Oh, probably 91. Probably As someone 91. that was at 92, like, I, I'm so gutted I didn't go the year before. So gutted. Well, I, I just think it just would have been fascinating at that point, you know, because obviously the narrative of Nirvana is that, you know, he, he hated every moment of it, but I, I don't really buy that. I've got friends who, who 
friends who are older than me who were in bands that played with Nirvana and they were like, Kurt was a right laugh. He was loving being a rock star. So I don't know. And it's even like, you know, there's that, there's that DVD or VHS in the day, Life Tonight Sold Out, which is so brilliantly edited because it really does start with what a laugh this is all is. And then mm. it does really go into the madness of, and the collapse of Nirvana. But no, I think, I think 91 would have been... It would have been like watching Guns N' Roses at the peak or something, you know. It would have been just been like watching an amazing, like an amazing rock band that loved, loved, loved what they were doing. I have one final thing to say uh, about Reading '92. So I was speaking to Miles Hunt, who another hero of mine. He was saying about that night because I just asked him about like that night, and after they come off, he was chatting with some people backstage and uh, just. Uh, guy was eyeballing him and he went over to this guy and said what's up and this guy started approaching him as well and he was like i'm the manager of nirvana how come you're getting paid so much more than my band and it's like wow he gave me the figures and i can't remember them for the life of me now but like wow wonder stuff getting paid like i think it was three times the amount of nirvana because just of the way that time frame worked out just nuts can't believe it I mean, it, it was a real buzz talking to Miles, actually. like, I, There's a lot of Wonder stuff I like, but I, I wouldn't lie and say I listen to it very often like anymore. But when I was a kid, you know, I, I, I loved that band. And he was so... I just find it mad with the Wonder stuff. I almost feel like there's a great Wonder stuff book out there that no one's written because it's so easy to forget how big they were and, like, how they basically just sort of gave up, really. And even when I did him for the podcast, he... he kind of admitted as much she was like we were mad to kind of give up on this like that we thought well at least he thought that he'd be better off without it and and and, and kind of bigger and better things were still to come afterwards but it, it, it's mad i'm really fascinated by that era sort of like after baggy and before like grunge and then obviously kind of Britpop. if that's the narrative we're viewing for you know kind of the progression of whatever guitar music is oh yeah but that bit, because because I'm I'm massive on EMF, right? Like the second EMF record is one of my favourite albums ever, and that's not something someone says very often. I'm just fascinated how that period is so overlooked, and yet so many records were sold. You know, I remember yeah. once being a kid and my dad we were going on holiday and like driving through Reading, and I was young, you know, because I, I I'm a bit younger than you. I was 12 in '92, and I'm, I was already into music. I remember kind of looking out the window and just seeing like a sea of like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, uh, Carter t-shirts and just yeah. being like, this is mental. I, you know, it was one of those, like, I, I want to be there one day. And now I would do anything other than go, I would do anything. I would, there's nothing that I would least rather do than go to Reading Festival. But, you know, at the time. Yeah, man. I, I had a friend that had four different Moo t-shirts. <laughs> four different Moo t-shirts. Oh, those were the days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's stop talking. Ah, I could talk to you just about music, but this isn't a music podcast. Yes, then. of course, of course. Let's talk about horror. What's your history with horror? Where does it begin? Can you remember a specific film, anything like that, that was like, wow, I love this stuff? Yeah, I was thinking about it today in preparation, and it was, you know, I think that I'm born 1980, but I think that from probably like mid probably a bit earlier, I might be off by a few years here, but I, I think that between about 75 and like 85, I think horror was so 
like embedded in British culture. Um, I can't remember the name of the. There's a guy that I know in Middlesbrough, who's who did a book about like even kind of like TV adverts and kind of like how horrifying um, kind of educational TV adverts was, you know. But also, I guess there's still, you know, rent, rent a Ghost and all that. Like, I was just, I was really in, I was really drawn to that stuff, you know. It was like, if I was down the supermarket, I always wanted, like, the sweets that had skeletons on or ghosts on or whatever. I loved all that stuff. And I just, I've got brothers who were, like, you know, sort of, I've got brothers who were, like, almost 20 years older than me. So they were, I saw, not that they were really into that stuff, but they they left like annuals and magazines and comics and stuff. So I, I really did have access to things that were maybe older than what I should have been consuming at that point. Yeah. And one of them was like the Usborne Book of Ghosts, which was mind-blowing. You know that book? I don't know the book, no. Jesus Christ, right, so... There's this book, Osborne, like the children's publishers, they put out this, they this series about like mysteries. Mm. And like one of them was about ghosts, one of them was about monsters, and one of them was about UFOs, I believe. And I've got them all now, bought them multiple times. Last time I bought them, they got, I think the ghost one got reissued a couple of years ago. So I, I bought that, and the intro was by Reece Shearsmith talking from Inside Number Nine and League of Gentlemen, talking about like how profound, what an influence this book had had him when he was a kid. And I know, know Danny Robbins that does, um uncanny that podcast and he talk, he says the same thing about how this book that he discovered in childhood really shaped this interest in the supernatural and the weird and the strange and so it's, it's not like a unique story me saying this but like it was i mean it, even now when i look at it like when i bought the reissues i left them on the living room table and my wife, who I've been with for like 10 years, I remember she picked him up and she was like, well, this explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> like, um, So I guess that was it, really. And I, I was always into sort of, I don't know, I just was, I didn't watch my first horror movie till I was nine. I think my first horror movie was Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm not a massive, like, Freddy fan. I'm not a huge fan of that franchise. But I remember watching it and just feeling like, I'd use the video plus to watch it to record it after my parents had gone to bed right and i watched it before they got up and i remember just sitting there being like nothing i remember sitting there really early on a sunday morning before they'd got up watching it on vhs being like nothing will ever be the same again now um and then I, a couple of years after that's ghost watch ghost watch was like massive for me yep. and then by the time i'm sort of like 13 14 that's when i'm like i'm reading film magazines and I listen to like Mark Kerr mode on the radio and I'm like, okay, well, these are the films I've got to watch. I've got to go watch The Exorcist. I've got to watch The Omen. I've got to watch Rosemary's Baby, you know, like, and then kind of going into like Universal Monsters and stuff. So I was just, I was mad on it quite, quite early, really. It's funny, there's a bit in the book about, I'm giving loads of the book away here. There's a bit in the book where I'm talking about horror because someone once said to me with my OCD, no one professional, but someone close to me once said, you know, if you have all these problems with like OCD, like why do you willingly watch so much horror? And I was like, because it's nothing. It's because it's never as scary as the OCD. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah, sure, it, yeah. It's a really, it's sort of a, an escape from that. You know, I find that I find there's something about horror which is just so fantastical and yeah. So yeah, I was I was I was early, but I think it was probably the uh, it was probably that Osborne book that 
that got me before films really that is quite quite common when uh what exactly what you said it's an escape uh from sometimes from whatever is it is mentally or physically like when i was growing up i had a overbearing parent and it's just like i just need to get away i need to to focus on something else uh, and that was it. it was heavy metal and it was horror movies and and that's I, mean, I, how I really I got see through. i really see that with om so it's, that's i'm processing your breakup in real time by the way <laughs> but i but that's what i really like about like your artwork and stuff that it's so kind of indebted to the stuff that you obviously love and i guess yeah. i don't really i don't know i mean I've, I've definitely got like genres of horror that i'm more into than others like I struggled a little bit. I'm not crazy on body horror. Uh, I wasn't crazy on a lot of, I guess, what you would call torture porn. But as the years right. have gone on, I've got a little bit more kind of fond of it. Uh, I'm not hugely into like comedy horror, although I could probably name 10 films within that genre that I think are really good. But like, it's not even just, I guess sort of the escapism isn't sort of doing justice what I'm trying to say. I've always been interested in like the big questions, you know, what happens when you die? Like, is there anything? Like, why are we here? And I feel like horror sort of indulges that curiosity in me as well. You know, it's not just like, oh, you know, I'm escaping to Dracula's castle. It's also just, I'm going to a place of like big ideas, you know? Um, I just think, I just think horror is the best thing in the world. But it's really hard. Like when, when I, I meet people, sometimes who don't like horror, and I'm like, "Well, how how is that possible?" It used to be a nightmare when I was a single man, and you'd go on dates, and you'd be like, "All oh, right, yeah, we're off to see Cannibal Holocaust," and they'd be like, "Why would I do that?" And I'm like, "Well, what you don't like horror? Horror?" And then obviously it didn't work out, you know, very quickly. But <laughs> come along, we'll watch Human Centipede. It'll be a laugh. <laughs> I'm always at the risk of coming across as a terror. I'm always trying to get my wife to watch to watch Human Centipede. I'm always like, it's really funny. It's really funny, but no, she's she's not having it. I think there. Okay, so you mentioned that you like a lot of genres. What about found footage? Where this film uh, Willow Creek lies? Like, how do you feel about found footage? Yeah, well, I, I kind of feel like found footage is kind of broken horror for me in a way you know like it's, when so i guess so i guess you know i know in i know the narrative is like blair witch right that that's right. kind of the the start of it all and you know if you want to be kind of nerdy you can be like well it was the last broadcast and then even if you kind of go back to you know a ghost watch or even before that like a cannibal holocaust or whatever i know that like that's kind of where it starts. But I remember watching Blair Witch and being like, can anything that is a dramatic production scare me as much as this? Like it was like Blair, Blair Witch is such a weird movie, right? Cause it's right. like, it's really hokey in lots of ways. And I've watched it so many times now and I've been terrified by it and I've been bored by it and I've been amused by it. And I've been disturbed by it. I've been all of these things, and it depends on what time of day it is, who else is in the house, um, where I am in the house, whether the lights are off, all, all that sort of stuff. And I just remember watching that movie and being very scared 
and I'm like probably 19 and I was really bought into all of the kind of meta stuff. I was buying Empire when they were sort of blurring the lines between what's real and what's not and the early days of the internet and reading the websites and watching that documentary that came out that fleshed out the lore and you know I knew I knew I wasn't watching a snuff movie right but I also I really like professional wrestling and I know I'm not really watching a fight but you can kind of trick yourself into believing it right yeah and I just from that point on whilst there's been loads of great horror that's been released and loads of great horror movies that would be like my all-time favorites I just think that when when found footage is at its peak, and that's a big ask because a lot of it is rubbish, but like when you discover like a, a Lake Mungo or a Naroi uh, and others that I can't think of top of my head, I'm like, I don't actually think that the more conventional dramatic productions and exorcists, so to speak, can really rival found footage for fear i just think it's you know a lot of people think it's almost sort of like uh quite base quite a base take on horror but i don't think that at all i think that as soon as you view a horror story through a like a digital device i think it just takes on I just, I just think found footage is like kind of the, the peak of what horror can be if i'm being honest yeah, I, I I thoroughly agree. I will watch any old shit anyway. But <laughs> if it's any old shit with a found footage edge, that goes to the top, and I'll watch that first. Absolutely. No idea why. No yeah, idea. Absolutely. No, no, I'm, I'm exactly the same. It's like when you're on Shudder and you're a bit like, oh well, I haven't heard of this, but I know this person who's in it, or I know this director. If there is a if there is a found footage movie, it's always that that pick. <laughs> what's wrong with us <laughs> okay um does it bother you before we go off this does it bother you if sometimes it's obvious that that isn't the camera that they're using so for instance like uh there'll be an uh, an exterior shot or something it's like well how did that happen you know will that instantly take you out or are you forgiving of those things well there is, i said i mentioned the last broadcast before and like i watched that movie when I was at university when I was a teenager and I watched it on my own I thought it was you know you know there's like there's quite a big twist in that movie and it blew me away I was like this movie's amazing like I've never seen anything like it and then I got a load of my mates around to watch it as in like check this out and they you know they liked it and everything but I noticed that there was uh there was a camera that hadn't been introduced in the movie the second time I watched it I sort of haven't really liked that movie ever since, you know. Right. Like, I, I do think that, you know, that it, it, even with Willow Creek, I rewatched it today in preparation for this. But I do think the thing with found footage is that there's a load of people who really rely on quite tired tropes. Like, like that's the the letdown. Really, that's the thing that is quite rigid. Uh, in in the presentation of in the storytelling of found footage movies is that you know it kind of it follows quite a set number of beats you know that's the that's the real difficulty but um i still would watch it over any other kind of horror really you well you mentioned tropes but, but instantly the one that i picked up with willow creek was the if, if you're going to track something or you're going to discover a legend or anything like that 
then you've got to interview some of the townsfolk first of all it's like that so so we're building up the mythos even more and i love that like i fine keep doing that i love it i actually thought it did that really well because some of those people are they're themselves aren't they yeah yeah he's like blair witch when they interview people in is it birkinsville like wherever the town is and they are you know they're playing themselves when you look at the credits it's you know so and so as themselves i think he does that really well i also think that the couple like a lot of this stuff like depends on how much you like the couple and i think he's a bit annoying but she's quite nice and cool and he's not that annoying and you kind of do believe that they're into each other so that time of building up the mythos and also uh preparing you for bad things to to, to, to trying to coax you into investing in 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 the leads i think i do think it does that that really well i was quite surprised actually when i was re-watching it that how what a brief film it is because it's very short yeah that really surprised me like watching it again but also just how long they spend on establishing the mythos and i think a bit of it is that like i'm obsessed with bigfoot anyway like let's go there I'm obsessed with Bigfoot, so there was, but I've never been to, I've never been to the Pacific Northwest, or at least into the sort of that that area, and uh, so there's a bit of me that's almost watching it like a sort of a, like a travel documentary or something, mm-hmm. you know, like all of those places, like you know the diner and the the bookshop and the the carvings, the statues of Bigfoot, they're all things I've always wanted to see, so. Uh, it sort of appeals from from that perspective, and the, the people singing the songs about the patterson gimlin movie i love all that so yeah but yeah bigfoot yeah bigfoot yeah. bigfoot's probably the usborne books as well if i'm being honest but i did when i left kerrang i went through a period where i just wrote about bigfoot all the time i know i just thought you were the ufo guy yeah when i offered you like what do you want to watch because this this year 2014 i know willow creeps like done the festival circuit in 2013 but like we didn't get on the screens until 2014 so i'm counting it as this year but there was a ton of ufo stuff and found footage ufo stuff as well uh, but you went for this and you said i'm much more into the bigfoot mythos so why when and where does willow creek fit into that well that whole that whole kind of sasquatch exploitation i was kind of mangle that that whole kind of genre i actually don't think there's loads of great movies within it but I don't know what it is about Bigfoot, but I did get, I mean, I, I wrote so much about it at one point. I did a piece of the face about looking for British Bigfoot. And I went out into, because some people believe that there's something in, uh, I can't remember the name of the forest in, in, in Norfolk, but there's people who believe there's something in there. There's people that believe there's something in Wales. I, interviewed, I did a piece of advice about a guy, Harry Rose, his name was, he was a photographer who'd done a, a like a, a whole photography project on his search for British Bigfoot. He has some fascinating stories, but it was kind of a bit more um, anthropological, really, like in the end, because, you know, a lot of it was about the people who really believed in Bigfoot. I guess that, like, I I, I honestly, I honestly don't know what it was about Bigfoot when I was a kid that, that appealed to me so much, really. I wasn't, I didn't grow up, like, surrounded by nature. I didn't grow up backing into forests or woods or anything i just i guess i just thought it was always amazing the idea the thought that there might be something like that there might be almost like another intelligent kind of apex species on earth 
I always thought that was kind of mind-blowing because, you know, the the idea of Bigfoot I sort of grew up with wasn't that it was like giant epithecus or it was like a, it was a giant right. ape, but it was yeah. almost like this was a an, another species like that was, you know, that was capable of like communicating with each with, with with other big feet i always struggle with that big feet big foot and i guess that's kind of what it was really but i think i did come to the conclusion that there is no british bigfoot i think that's very silly i don't even think there is a bigfoot although i do right. think i probably believe that there was like i think that probably humans and you know the the, the cryptid that we would know as bigfoot or yeti or uh, I can't remember what it's called in Australia, but you know the fact that this is like a recurring myth around the world. Sure. I think I always, I, I think I probably come to the conclusion that there probably was something that existed at the same time as as human beings. But I don't. A, a bit of the problem with like Bigfoot lore is that I don't know. There's almost. I'm I'm quite new with UFOs. I'm I'm all in on UFOs at the moment and. I actually think we are on the verge of something big happening. And but I guess my problem with UFOs for a long time is that there's not a lot of I think there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence, right? Evidence in kind of air quotes, but like there's not it's like you have to believe in something that you can't see. And I guess right. a bit with Bigfoot, like the patty, like the Patterson the Patterson Gimlin footage, even though it's blatantly a man in a suit. There was a long time where I didn't think it was a man in a suit. It was like, oh, there is actually evidence of this. Like, I definitely felt like that when I was younger. Right. So, yeah, and no, Bigfoot was my boy. Okay, your wife says to you, right, let's do this. Uh, we're going to, Kelly and Jim, we're going to go camping. We're going to do it. Are you going to go? Yeah, all right. Yeah, we have this conversation all the time. We, we have this conversation, actually. I love it. Yeah, no, we had this conversation when we were watching Willow Creek, the first time we watched it together. I was like, you know, I was like, this is, you know, this is like my dream honeymoon. And she was like, you're mental. Why am I marrying you? Um, but th but there's loads of that, you know, like I can be playing like Fallout. I can be like fiddling around on Fallout while she's, you know, making tea or something. And, I, and I'll be like, God, I would love to, I would love to, experience the apocalypse for a little bit and she'd be like you're mental you know <laughs> or we're watching jaws and i'm like oh yeah i'd love to you know if you're gonna go out you might as well be eaten by a great white shark <laughs> i don't know i think there's a fundamental difference in our personalities there but i do remember watching i do remember the, when we did watch willow creek together i do remember us having the conversation and me being like can we can, can we go there and uh, her being like this is crazy but she she has indulged a lot of my a, a, a lot of my interests so who knows we might end up there one day but i, think I hope she will, so i think she will insist on a hotel it, <laughs> it'd make it another great book that's what i would say yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> which she is did, just what you want to jump into well she did she did come well yeah she did come she did come on the search for british bigfoot though she did she did drive me out there and wander around the forest for a bit and you know indulge you know, we there were some people. It's called. There's some people I know who do a podcast about kind of folklore in Norfolk. I can't remember what it's called. It's probably going to be something just as simple as Norfolk folklore, but I can't remember. Weird, weird right. Norfolk or something. And they and they're really nice girls. And they they took us around, and they were, you know, I don't know how much they believe, but they were a bit like, oh well, this is you know, people say that these 
broken branches are evidence of British Bigfoot and um, you know my wife sort of nodded respectfully even though I think she was probably thinking why the fuck am I in a right, got in, it. In, in the woods in, in Norfolk you know but. well full cards on the table I love this film yeah um, there's not a lot to it like there, there isn't there is a common criticism that this film is too long even though we've both said it's it's really short Right, and it zips by. What is it attracts you to Willow Creek over the other, other Bigfoot films? Like, or does it not? Is there one that is actually no? This this is not the one. This is the one. No. Well, the thing with Willow Creek is that it's a scene. It's it's a movie built around a scene. Yeah. Uh, like the tent scene is incredible. Like in like incredible. Like if you were going to compile a list of you know the greatest horror moments i'm i'm arguing all the way that the tent scene deserves to be included in a conversation about the top 20. like the first time i watched it i mean my wife were watching it and we're like okay well he's proposing to her in the tent i mean it was like can can we make it through the rest of this scene and it, it's weird because obviously all of these you know tension is a big part of horror and shock and surprise you know these are all ingredients within horror but you really are like watching like it is unbearable in places <laughs> and then the fact that like nothing actually del delivers it's like i i felt like when i was watching that i was watching something that i'd just never seen before which is quite rare when you you know watch as much horror as we seemingly do and I think in lots of ways the movie is a bit, you know, I do think that the ending's good. I do, you know, him getting dragged away from the camera is, you know, very wreck. But I do think the appearance of the woman that, spoilers, who'd gone missing earlier in the movie, I do think that's cool. You know, I mean, it does sort of imply that Bigfoot is like just really horny and that's quite twisted and disturbing. And that's a lot of what you've come to horror for. But the t in lots of ways it is like, the whole movie is like a bed for that tent scene. And I, I just think that's amazing. And you've got to, you know, it is that thing of, you know, maybe you'll appreciate it with songwriting or, you know, especially like sludge and doom and, and metal in general, like music, which is primarily about dynamics. A lot of it is about having to endure something before something. And I think that that is, I mean, I just think that, I just think that scene's fantastic. This, I just think it's fantastic. It's just so intimate and odd and ex exhausting. It's it's amazing. I've recently watched The Strangers, uh, and that has a, a an opening very similar, where there's a proposal that hasn't um, been accepted. So that's your beginning of the film. So you're already feeling a bit, oh, that's weird. That's yeah. unusual. So we've got the same thing here. And then when they switch the light off because they're going to, just going to go to sleep so they, they the proposal hasn't gone very well but you know it's it, they'll come back to it and there is all they instantly got that atmosphere it's like oh god that did not go well turn the light off and then uh, i timed it 13 minutes unbroken shot after that and that is as you say it's something else it's something you do not see in horror in a fixed position like that because all of a sudden like bobcat uh, I can't. I still can't believe that it's him directing from yeah. Police Academy. It's mad, but yeah. 
it's not up to him now. It's up to these two actors that already you've mentioned, like, I really like one of them. One of them, uh, they're okay. But, like, you've just got to sit back and watch them do it. And I think it's her. It's that uh, Alexi Gilmore is her name, playing Kelly. I think she sells it because as soon as you get the noise that's too close, she reacts like I would react, like anybody would react. Like, you can't help that, ah! like, from coming out. You yeah. can't help it. And it, yeah. I'm sold. I'm sold. And I love that. And I also think that because there's quite a tense scene before the tent, but it transpires to be a raccoon, which is quite funny. Yeah. But then it kind of goes right into the this. I mean, I should have timed how long it is, but it definitely it definitely feels longer than you would like it to be. And because then it goes into this static scene, and I do think it is that thing. You know, I'm always a bit like, have you ever seen the, have you ever seen the Mark Gattis documentary, The History of Horror, the thing he did for the BBC? It's like three parts. It's like, it's, it's really, it. yeah, it's really good. I'm always really cautious when I'm when I'm talking, talking about horror or writing about horror that I sort of don't sort of try to intellectualize it too much. So, because I think that that's in lots of ways, it's almost like, I, I don't really like talking about how magic tricks are done. You know sure. what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. like, let me believe, right? But I do love, I do love that this movie doesn't show you Bigfoot. Like there is a little, I think there's a bit of hair at the end, isn't there? I think there's a foot or something, but you know, like I do like that movie exists and I obviously like Night of the Demon, you know, like, cause it's a classic, but it is the fact that you don't see, I mean, it could be a bear, right? I mean, it's, there's all the kind of like the law that is being trotted out, like the tapping of branch, the tapping of trees and branches and wood being hammered against each other and the kind of the vocalizations. And if you know a bit about Bigfoot, you're like, well, that's all the stuff that people talk about, but you know, it could be anything. Um, I, I, I do think that's amazing because that's the thing with Bigfoot is that so few people have actually claimed to have any kind of direct contact with a Bigfoot that actually so much of this stuff is about, well, what is it? It's about the sort of the mystery of it. And I just mm -hmm. think that's, I mean, I, I, that said, I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. I'm sure it was like, oh, well, you know, it's quite a low-budget movie. But it is, you know, in this case, the sort of less is more is what is scary about it. Also, I used to be in the Scouts, and that was a terrifying experience, going on camps and being there in the middle of the night with all of the adults miles away. So there's a bit, there's a bit of suppressed trauma there, I think. Um, I'm going to move on in a second to what you double bill with it but before we leave willow creek um anything else you want to mention chat about about this film as i say there's not a lot to it and i don't want to spoil it all but is there anything else you want to bring out here well i don't think i mean i don't think it's i don't think it's like the, i don't think it's the best bigfoot movie per se you know i do think that i just said night and the demon i mean that's i feel like that should be on anyone's you know, uh, is are you talk about night of the demon with the the penis rip <laughs> You can't give everything away on this podcast, my friend. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to get it in my head which one it was. No, the the nineteen eighty video nasty. No, okay. Um, I I think the I think that's probably the best Bigfoot movie, but and I I don't think it's the best found footage movie either. Um, Willow Creek, but I do think that it would be a shame if anyone missed it. It would be a shame if any student of horror missed out on it you know like right. 
I just think there's there's not a massive story. It's almost like a sort of an urban legend fleshed out into visual form. I do think the twist is surprising. I do think that the couple are watchable and it's enjoyable spending time with them. I do think if you're interested in Bigfoot, actually seeing some of the sights is really fun. But I just think that scene deserves deserves to be part of the, the, the palette of any self-respecting horror fan. 100%, yeah. That, that should be part of the horror lore when we're talking about found footage. And yeah. unfortunately, it's not like it. It it gets this film gets referenced, but thrown in with uh, you've mentioned it already exist, like, and it's always referenced with that. It's never sort of like uh, from the the documentaries I've seen anyway, and the text that I've read. It's never single handedly pulled out and like this is what you can do with a stationary camera in a tent. You know, it's mad, and it's it's odd that it isn't seen like that but saying that it is quite new relatively speaking so maybe like another 10 years time will change things a bit yeah great poster as well <laughs> yes these things matter <laughs> fucking yes they do um what are you gonna double bill this with i think I'd, i mean i think i probably would say legend of Bo boggy creek i mean i i don't think it's a, like a great movie at all but i think that that sort of blurring i mean it's not not found footage per se but you know i i do love that kind of mockumentary thing yeah i don't think it's a great movie but it's sort of like year zero for for the whole genre and as i think it's i i like those stories that are presented as journalistic as a journalistic work yeah uh it's funny we, actually we, we didn't really talk about that but the second, well, not second time, but the most recent time I watched Willow Creek, I, I was I was thinking, it's weird how they don't present it as like this footage was found. Mm -hmm. You know Straight. what I mean? It, yeah, it, yeah. They swerve all of that. Um, but no, I do. Look, I, I remember I, I watched the Legend Legend of Boggy Creek probably like twenty twenty five years ago when I was at university, and it was. It's kind of wild when you watch it because you're like, oh, this is these are just like the sort of the nature documentaries that I used to kind of watch on the BBC in a way, you know, like an American sort of take on it. But yeah, that, that, that's probably the two. Or or, uh, or if the tent scene is, that's a, that would be my double bill. But if the tent scene is too much for you, then there's always Harry and the Hendersons. So it might be good just to have that What's on standby. That? Of course there is. I would throw out onto my double bill, I'd have to say exists. So... I watched it as a double bill with this a few days ago and I always watch something and then do the research afterwards. So I didn't know it was the Blair Witch guy. And I had no idea that we were actually in this one going to get to see so much of Sasquatchy. I don't know the plural for Sasquatch, but <laughs> whatever it would be. Yeah. I feel like we've, we've bumbled through this entire episode. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, I, I thought it was a nice contrast um, again, you have to put away your, where did that camera, camera come from? That sort of sense, like forget about that and just enjoy the film for what it is. But yeah, I, I had a thoroughly good time watching both of them. I do like that movie Shriek of the Mutilators. Do you know that? No, stop it. You're going to cost me a lot of money here. No, that is good. <laughs> it's, it's, that's off its, off its tits. 
Um, thank you for inviting me on. Oh, dude, it, it's been like another box ticked. Thank you so much for this. go thank you so much to james mcmahon we were talking about willow creek and you might be thinking well that sold it where can i find this film to watch and let me tell you in the uk it is streaming on freebie and icon what's icon uh, it's free of charge if you're subscribed over there uh, in the usa try tubi and peacock uh, there's a few more to boot as well but i would say tubi i like that one Podcasts, on the other hand, I would try a fantastic double bill feature uh, that the Corpse cast put out in July of this year. They pair it with Exist, and so they should. (laughs) 